Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Today, it's hard to go very long without hearing about special operations forces like the Army's Green Berets and the Navy's SEAL teams. Before special operators became an ingrained part of the military strategy and established a prominent presence in the public eye, they existed as experimental, now largely forgotten units that were launched during the Second World War. One of the primary predecessors of today's commandos was the first special service force, which was known simply as the Force, and is described in a book by the same name by military historian Saul David. Today on the show, Saul explains how he came across this little-known story of the Force and traces its origins to an idea formulated by an eccentric British civilian scientist and championed by Winston Churchill, which envisioned a unit that could accompany a fleet of snow tanks into enemy territory. Saul details how the Force was composed of men from both America and Canada, how members were recruited from the rough and ready ranks of explorers, miners, lumberjacks, and hunters who were physically strong and used to cold temperatures and rugged terrain. And he also talks about the rigorous training that turned these recruits into what was arguably the military's fittest and best disciplined fighting force, a unit which became known as the Devil's Brigade. We turn to the action these elite commandos saw during the war, which included scaling the sheer cliffs of the mountain to secure a Nazi stronghold. And we enter a conversation with why the unit was disbanded before the war was even over and how its legacy continues to live on in the special forces of today. After the show is over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash the force. All right, Saul David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be here. So you got a book out called The Force, The Legendary Special Ops Unit in World War II's Mission Impossible. And it's about this military unit that was combined American and Canadian troops. And they were basically sort of the precursor Green Berets, Navy SEALs. And I never heard of the story. And I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard about the story. How did you come across the story of The Force? Well, believe it or not, Brett, given that I'm a military historian and I've studied a lot of stories of this type, I hadn't heard about it either. And that that really sums up how it's sort of slipped between the cracks of history a little bit. I was, uh, you know, as I've already pointed out, I've, I've written about war from the Romans onwards. But one thing that doesn't change in military history is the the basic principles of war. The, the, the methods change, but the way you fight wars don't. And so I felt at liberty to range long and wide. But I hadn't really written much on the Second World War since my first couple of books, and there are another 10 or ten or 12 in between. So I was very keen to find a Second World War story. I was keen to find a story that would allow me to concentrate on a relatively small group of people. Uh, and I was also keen to find a story, if possible, that, that you know, had a certain amount of daring doing it, behind the line sort of stuff, elite soldiers. So putting all those things together, I did a quick search, basically, an online search, believe it or not, to find that sort of force. And I came up very quickly with these entries to the first special service force, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, it talked about the nature of the force, where it had fought. And I, I was intrigued. I was, I was fascinated. And I was also surprised I hadn't heard about it. And if I hadn't heard about it, Brett, I knew an awful lot of other people wouldn't have done. To understand the the origins of the force, we have to look at the the high level strategic thinking that Roosevelt, Churchill, and the other military leaders involved in the war in Europe were thinking. So, what was the strategic thinking, high level strategic thinking that eventually led to the creation of the force? Well, the the time is important. the The context of the date we're talking about the spring of 1942, where pretty much everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong certainly for the British uh, up until this point in the war, and also for the Americans. They'd come in after Pearl Harbor in December 1941 and really had been pushed back all the way through the Pacific 
it was a litany of disaster, really. And so that when the Americans came over to Britain to discuss strategy in April 1942, all sides were looking for a way to strike back, but particularly Churchill and the British, mainly because resources were always difficult to get hold of. And they were looking for a way to create a force that could actually do a lot more damage in terms of its size and therefore its cost than you, you would normally get in a military scenario. And in, in part of the strategy, they were thinking that one thing, that one, one of the fronts they could open up was in Norway. What were they thinking? Why Norway? Yeah, they're looking for strategic targets. They're looking for targets, particularly that were in snowy areas, and mountainous areas. And the reason for that is because those areas, particularly when in, in wintertime, military operations can't take place. But there were strategic targets in those locations, both in the Carpathian Mountains in Romania, one of the areas they were looking at, where you had a lot of oil fields that the Axis powers were using. But, but crucially in Norway, there was hydroelectric power. And there was also, although they didn't know it at the time, the development of hard water, which would be used for nuclear weapons. So there's very much a sense that they could really disable that that hydroelectric effort that the Germans were really moving into, you know, into top gear with by using a force in Norway that would fight behind the lines and that would be able to fight in winter warfare. So yeah, they, they thought, okay, winter warfare. So they had to develop a winter warfare unit because at the time, both the British and the Americans didn't really, they weren't, they didn't have units that were trained just for mountaineering or training in, the, in winter conditions. And so they had this idea or someone had this idea. Well, it actually is this guy, Jeffrey Pike, who had this idea of creating sort of like a snow tank, basically, and that you would train these forces that would be able to work with these snow tanks. And it got called, this whole idea got called Project Plow. Can you walk us through Project Plow and, and this guy, Jeffrey Pike, who came up with the idea? I mean, Pike is one of the great characters of the Second World War. And although interestingly enough, from, from the British perspective, he wasn't alone. There were quite a few of these odd eccentric characters who really made a, a vital contribution to the war effort. Pike himself actually wasn't even a scientist. The British and Churchill in particular were very keen to use scientists to, you know, to develop ways to fight warfare, develop ways to get one over the enemy. But Pike wasn't a scientist. He certainly wasn't scientifically trained. He's actually originally an educationalist, but also a, a civilian inventor. And he came out with all kinds of nutty ideas throughout the Second World War. Now, this was probably one of his least nutty ideas. He thought that if you could create this elite force, this commando force that could fight in winter warfare, the other really key element of it being able to strike hard and fast and then be able to get away was by creating a snow vehicle, as you as you point out, a, a snow plow, as it was known. I mean, that was its code name. What you're really talking about is creating a track vehicle that can move anywhere on snow, particularly up and down quite steep gradients. And Pike reckoned that if a force was equipped with this vehicle, it could get away from the enemy. Really, it could strike hard and then get away. So that was the plan. You create the force, you develop the vehicle, and you've got something that you can use against strategic targets. Well, we got to talk about more about Pike's some of his crazy inventions, because one of them that almost, like Churchill really liked this idea, but it never came to fruition. Like he came with this thing called uh, Pikrete, which basically it made ice like almost like concrete, 
And he had this idea of creating aircraft carriers out of this stuff. You couldn't make it up. I mean, his idea was you're going you're gonna to drag icebergs from the Arctic. You're going to tow them to the theater of war. You're going to coat them in this pikecrete, which was a sort of combination of, of snow ice and wood pulp and, you know, and various other things, which he had patented and presumably was going to make a lot of money out of if they'd actually use this. And of course, it's called pikecrete after him. It all sounds completely nutty, doesn't it? But actually, it was taken very seriously to the extent that Mountbatten, who was a great supporter of Jeffrey Pike, Mountbatten being the chief of combined operations, which was really the force set up to strike back at the Germans using commandos in the early stages of the war. Mountbatten was convinced that Pikecrete would work, and he was given permission by Churchill to demonstrate it at a meeting of the chiefs of staff and the President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill, which, and this is really hard to believe, but it actually happened. Mountbatten fires a pistol into the Pikecrete to show how strong it is. This was, of course, incredibly dangerous in a closed room. The bullet ricocheted off the Pikecrete and almost hit one of the chiefs of staff. So it almost ended in disaster. But, you know, it was taken very seriously. It was almost used, but they decided not to use it in the end for two reasons, really. One, they had enough aircraft carriers. And two, they were going to use these harbours, which, of course, they did eventually, the Mulberry Harbours off the D-Day Normandy coast. So you said that he wasn't really a trained scientist. He's more of like a gentleman scholar type guy. But how did, why did people, like, why did people in the British leadership take him seriously? Well, I think it all comes down to, well, two things actually, Brett. I mean, it's partly the British character. We, the, the, these eccentric people who are amateur inventors or gentleman inventors, as you say, there's been a long history of that. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of the great breakthroughs in British science were actually made by people who weren't trained scientists. But there's another thing here, and that and that's Churchill. Churchill had a great interest in quirky ideas. You know, he thought outside the box himself, and he was always looking for people who could approach a traditional problem from a different angle. And Pike was very much this sort of character. How can we disable an enormous number of the enemy, certainly the enemy troops and the enemy war effort, with a relatively small force? And that's exactly what Pike was offering him. All right. So they, the British with Pike got this idea of we're going to create a, a snow vehicle. And it basically looked like a, a spiral like cylinder thing that sort of just moved and it just went through the, that was the idea, went through the snow. They had to take this to the Americans. What did the Americans think of Project Plow? Well, it's interesting because I think my belief is that when this crucial meeting took place in April 1942, when the idea of Project Plow was first mooted to the Americans, Churchill was already on board, Mountbatten was already on board. There was a big discussion about strategy. The British seemed to have moved towards the American direction in terms of overall war strategy. And I think that the acceptance of Project Plow was a bit of a quid pro quo, actually. It was like, okay, you've given us something. We'll take this nutty idea on board and we'll see where we'll see where it goes. They didn't promise anything at this stage, but Marshall uh, effectively said, well, we'll have a look at it. You know, we'll, we'll make sure some senior people in the War Department have a look at it and we'll see where it goes. And, and if it's viable, we will fund it. And I, I think that's the key thing here. The British simply didn't have the resources either to pay for and create and train this force, and more importantly, to actually develop the snow vehicle. All right, so Marshall took the idea, and I think he passed it on to Eisenhower and said, hey, you take a look at this. Eisenhower then delegated this thing to a guy named Bob Frederick. And Bob Frederick, he basically just did this report analysis. Is this feasible? Will it do anything, et cetera, et cetera? What was Frederick's initial analysis on this? 
Well, given the fact that Frederick becomes the father of the first special service force, and I hope I'm not giving the game away too much by saying that, it's pretty remarkable that his initial appraisal, having spoken to all the key people and looked at an awful lot of documents, was it'll never work. I mean, I think one of his main concerns was you need an awful lot of air assets to to transport this force. And you'll never be able to get these in, in wartime when you know, big planes are required for bombing runs, basically. Um, but he, you know, he he was skeptical about other elements of the plan. Uh, and so submitted his report to Eisenhower, who was one of the operations chiefs, chiefs at the War Department at that time. And Eisenhower was infuriated when he got back from a, a trip to Britain when he received this report, because basically he'd promised the Brits that he would he would get it done. And so for Frederick to say it can't be done, he didn't want to hear that. He, he goes back to Frederick and, you know, and, and he says, you know, you, you look at this again. Now, it's at this point when Frederick probably realizes, OK, there are some, you know, seriously high level people backing this, that he began, in my view, to see the possibility of his own involvement, uh, his own personal ambition. I mean, what could be more brilliant for someone who's really a staff officer, who's unlikely ever to see combat in the Second World War, actually creating and leading this type of special force in combat? I, you know, I'm convinced that something clicked in his head and he, he saw the opportunity. And at that point, he maneuvered himself into the position of actually taking command of it. Yeah, he made a big jump in rank and he was a young guy too. He was like only 32 or so. Yeah, he's he's mid thirties. He, you know, he's someone who is done reasonably well in his career. He's no question he was a fine staff officer, but fine staff officers rarely make good combat leaders. But he he certainly had you know this X factor that allowed him you know both to inspire men, but also great attention to detail. And that is exactly what was required in creating this force. He he had to be able to inspire the young recruits, particularly given the training regime they were about to undergo. But he also had to keep keep abreast of enormous amount of detail, a lot of planning meetings, a lot, lot, lot of admin to deal with as well. All right. So the Americans signed off on this. And I guess at this point, Pike kind of went into the background. He's like, all right, my idea is taken over. My work is done. Well, not entirely. He, he does actually go over to America. He wants to keep an eye, particularly on the development of the snowmobile. But the Americans find him, you know, they don't have quite the same willingness to put up with eccentrics like Pike. And they find him very obstructive. And actually, a combination of Eisenhower, Frederick, and one or two others managed to get Pike sent back to the UK. Look, we'll, we'll carry on with the project, but we don't need him interfering. <laughs> so, that, so that's pretty much what happens to Pike. But nevertheless, you know, his original idea was beginning to fly. By the summer of 1942, they launch the force. That, that is, they start looking for recruits, and they're also well into the development of the snowmobile. Well, we, let's talk about the launch of the, the force, because this is a, a unique unit, because they decided it was going to be combined American and Canadians unit. Why did the British and Americans decide to do that? It's an amazing fact when you think about it. First time it's ever happened in history, probably, Brett, the last time it ever will happen in history, that you have this joint U.S.-Canadian force commanded by officers from both sides. You know, the leader ultimately was going to be Frederick, but it was, you know, it was very much a force with with equal input from both these armies. And there was one very good reason for that, actually, and that was that they needed to recruit people who would be suitable for this type of winter warfare. And and there was a feeling that, you know, Canadians, they live in this sort of climate anyway. They're obviously ideal. I think there was also an element of this is still allowing a kind of British uh, connection to the story. I mean, bear in mind that the 
Canada at that time still had the Union Jack as its flag. Of course, you still had the Royal Connection. And so I, it was probably a little bit of a sop to Churchill on the one hand and a feeling that we're going to get some damn good recruits from Canada as well. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the people that both countries recruited from. But what, another interesting fact about the the force is that it wasn't under any branch of the military in the United States. It wasn't like part of the Army or Navy. It was actually just part of the War Department. Well, Frederick was very much of the opinion that you there was going to be all kinds of interference. That traditionally, there's always been a sense, Brett, that you know that special forces are frowned upon by by you know the traditional elements of the military. It was it was the case then, and it's still the case today. And I think Frederick realized this, and therefore he wanted to keep the force, you know, with the small as as small a chain of command as possible. Basically, he wanted he wanted to answer only to uh, the the army chief of staff. Uh, and that's exactly what happened at the start. It was just a war department-led uh, kind of operation. And Frederick's given complete carte blanche. He's he's literally given a document that says, you know, this is priority war work. Anything I need, I get. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So you mentioned that one of the reasons they brought in Canadians, they wanted people who were, you know, used to this sort of the climate that they thought they were going to fight in, snow, mountains, et cetera. And so as a consequence, they recruited heavily amongst like lumberjacks, miners, hunters. And this also happened, it seemed like in the United States, they were primarily recruiting like from like the Northwest, the Montana area. So the same sort of climate. So, I mean, who are the type of guys like that joined up? I mean, what was this, what was the pitch when, you know, the, when Frederick went out and was trying to get people to join this thing, what was what, what was he selling them? Well, the first thing that's interesting is that they sent the pitch to pretty much everybody. So there was no unit in the U.S. Army and the Canadian military forces that that didn't actually receive the pitch. The question is, who were they going to get and who were they going to select? But but the pitch was quite specific. In Canada, they were looking for so-called active personnel with high physical standards, military trained, and ideally possessing the combined qualities of mountaineer, northwoodsman, and skier, as, you, as you've already pointed out. And the Americans were looking for something similar. They were a bit more specific, actually. They wanted single men between the ages of 21 and 35, three grades of grammar school, and you know the occupations you, you've already mentioned. And it's true that the majority of the force did come from those sort of backgrounds, but they, it, it, wasn't enti- it wasn't exclusive. And what's interesting about the force is that there were people from all over the United States, from all over Canada, and there's even one guy who who actually figures quite prominently in the story, a guy called Percy Critchlow, who's a sergeant, who's a 29-year-old classics teacher from the Caribbean. You know, this is a, this is a bright intellectual guy, almost the opposite of what they're looking for. But if you had the right stuff, and you said the right thing in interview, and you appeared to be the right type of guy, you were determined enough, and you were fit enough. They took you on. So Percy was one guy that you highlight in the book. Any other guys that you highlight in the book that, you know, kind of epitomize the type of man who joined up with the force? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll give you one example on each side. I mean, on the Canadian side, I mean, one, one of the most attractive figures as far as I was concerned, because, again, quite an unusual uh, type to pick, was a guy called Captain Tom McWilliam. I mean, he was 27 years old, a school teacher. He came from the Eastern Maritime province of New Brunswick. Um, He wasn't particularly tall. He wasn't particularly heavy. What he was, was a talented athlete, deceptively strong, and frankly, in my view, a born leader. And, you know, it was what's so brilliant about the, the, the selection process is they were able to find people like McWilliam. Now that was the Canadian side. On the on the American side, of course, you had people from, uh, you know, as you've already pointed out, the Northwest in particular. 
But that wasn't just, they, they were also looking for people who had experience from that region. And I, I think probably the, you know, the, the, the best example of all, someone who again figures very prominently in the story is a man who wasn't that young. In fact, he was out of the age range. He was 37 years old, a man called Howard Van Ousdale, who was actually half Dutch and half Native American. He'd been a gold prospector and trapper in, in the Northwest state of Oregon for many years. I mean, you know, exactly what they're looking for. But he had the added advantage of being someone who had a great kind of sense of, you know, he, he could track people, he could, he, he had a great sense of, of the relief of the mountainside. And this would be a, a, a talent that was going to become very useful when they actually get to the mountains in Italy. And I think it's another thing to point out, we've been calling it the force, but like, that's what Frederick decided. He wanted to call it, he called it the force. Like that's what it was referred to as. Yeah, that was its shortened version. I mean, he actually chose the full name, the first special service force, because he thought it would mislead people. I mean, he thought it was a very kind of bland name that was almost like the the entertainment troupe that the U.S. Army had at the time. And, and indeed, they, they were sometimes mistaken for that entertainment troupe. He was trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. But actually, when you think about it, first special service force, you know, in modern terms, you think, yeah, okay, these, these guys sound quite tough to me. But uh, it was shortened to the force. That was what they were known then. And that's what they still call themselves today. All right. So they, they started recruiting these guys. They set up a training camp in Montana. And the leaders there were, they were charged with basically getting these guys into shape and, but also you know, making the most elite soldier possible. And so they came up with this, you know, one of the most rigorous advanced training programs for fighters in World War II. And this was one of my favorite parts of the book because it was just, it, it was like a movie montage almost. I could like imagine them doing all these different things. What was their training like? Can you give us a, a bit of uh, exam- some examples of that? Well, I've looked at training for military forces uh, through the ages, and in particular, modern-day special forces, and I have never seen a training regime that is as tough as this one. Certainly, if you consider that they had to go from, you know, pretty much being, very few of them had actually been in combat. In fact, hardly any of them had been in combat. So it's not as though they were, they were you know, trained, hard-bitten soldiers. These were young men with with talent, with determination, and they were thrust into a training regime that was incredibly brutal. So within just days of them arriving at at the camp near Helena, Montana, they were expected to go through their parachute training. Now, normally that would take about six weeks. They were expected to do it in in a week. I mean, everything was accelerated. So once they got their wings and plenty of them didn't get their wings, you know, they broke their legs or they, and they were immediately returned to their units if that happened. But once you got your wings after just two jumps, then the real tough stuff started. So, you know, just to give you a sense of what they went through, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the training regime. From August to October, as well as parachuting, they weren't. They learned weapons and demolition usage, unarmed combat and small unit tactics. October to November 1942, large unit tactics and problem solving. November 1942 to March 1943, skiing, rock climbing, adaption to cold climates, an operation and maintenance of the weasel snow vehicle, that, that is the, the snowplow, which, which they developed. And from April to June 1943, amphibious landing techniques. And while all of this is going on, Brett, they're put through the most brutal physical training program that you can imagine that included the fatigue of combat, unfavorable terrain or adverse weather. It consisted chiefly of crawling, rope, rope climbing, boxing, push-ups, games doubling, running. I mean, they did it all. They, 
And, and what's interesting about this physical regime is that you think on the one hand, you need you know guys who, who can get through it. Of course they did, but they also needed thinking soldiers, just like the special forces today. They were looking for a combination of a physical Superman, but also someone who could think outside the box. It was really uh, a brutally tough, as I say, training regime. And those people who came through it and plenty didn't became, in my view, some of the finest trained soldiers of the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, as you, you're describing all the skills they learned, I mean, for most of the military in the British and the Americans, like there'd be like the airborne division that would learn how to skydive. Well, these guys had to learn how to skydive. And then like amphibious, that, that was for the Marines. Well, these guys had to learn amphibious assault. So they were, they were doing it all. They were jack of all trades. They were. And, and it's worth pointing out that when they were doing all these various different skills and they were being tested on their ability in these skills, they were generally off the charts. That, you know, a good example is during the amphibious training in the spring of 1943. Of course, the Marines had been through that. There were records at, you know, getting on and off landing craft. All those records were broken by the forcemen. And if you bear in mind, they only had a week or two to train to break these records. You just get a sense of the sort of people that they had, you know, that they had created in this force. And their, you know, their their ability to to shoot, their their aggression, their physical capability, their multi-skills capability was really outstanding. And on a metric of of up to a hundred, a hundred of course being the highest, they were usually way off that 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 scale. They were they were into the 140s, 150s. They had never seen soldiers like this before. Did the soldiers, as they were training at this uh, camp near Helena, Montana, did they they know what they were going to be used for exactly, or were they just sort of there and they're just whatever they had to do that day? They did. They didn't know for sure. There were lots of rumors. They were they were occasionally working in sort of cutouts of hydroelectric dams and and power stations. So they had a they had, some of them had a suspicion it might be something something to do with hydroelectric power, but they were never officially told where they were going as as soldiers of course never are right up until the last minute. So there were a lot of, but w- one thing they knew for sure though Brett they were going behind the lines and the likelihood of them coming back from this mission were very low. So they were training the troops getting these guys ready. We forgot about the plow because this is the whole thing that kickstarted it. What, how was the development of this uh, snow vehicle going while they were training these soldiers? Well, it went very well, actually. And it went well, of course, because the resources were pretty much unlimited. That Studebaker was was given the job of, of developing this vehicle in, in, in cahoots with, you know, various uh, technical branches of the, of the American military. They were doing it with various research bodies, both in the United States and Canada. And Canada in particular already had some form in this field. And they came up with, admittedly having to refine it through various different modifications, but they came up with something that was really, really effective. The so-called weasel, the M29 vehicle, was developed and used in large numbers actually later on in the war. And you, you find it popping up in various different campaigns. But for reasons I'm sure we'll come on to in a second, it was never actually used in combat by the force, even though it was developed for them. Okay. Well, let's talk about these guys are getting trained. So we got to remember these are American and Canadians and every combat unit has their own unique culture. And I imagine this one developed a really unique culture because not only the type of training they were doing, but also the fact that they were soldiers from two different countries. What was the culture like in the force? I mean, it was fascinating when they first came across each other, when when the recruits first arrived at Helena in early August 1942. They had different uniforms. They had different ways of marching. They had had different equipment. I mean, 
you know, if you think of this, the, the learning curve that they had to go through to become, you know, to create a kind of esprit de corps in this single unit was really, again, incredibly steep. But they were prepared to do it. And it's very interesting. I think, you know, by the, by the end, certainly by the time that, the, uh, you know, they go into combat, there's a, a real sense of unity, even though they come from very different backgrounds. Does that mean there wasn't any tension between the nationalities? No, it doesn't. There certainly was. There, there were fistfights between them, particularly in the early days. There was a certain amount of bad blood uh, between one particular uh, platoon, in my view, between the, the Americans and the Canadians. There's, you know, there's a lot of fighting. There's even some firing going on during a live firing exercise that wounds one of the soldiers. You know, the, these were tough men, tough men who were you know, who took no prisoners. And there wasn't a feeling that particularly the Canadians felt that the Americans, you know, were better paid, which they were. Their, their parachute pay was higher than the Canadians were getting, you know, and there was inevitably going to be some uh, sense of national competition. But despite all of that, as as the training continued, slowly but surely, the, their, their real pride was in their unit in their company, and even down to their platoon and their section, as happens in all of these elite military forces. So as I was reading this, it reminded me of the story of the 10th Mountain Division. We did a podcast about them a couple months ago. And the thing with the 10th Mountain Division, they developed sort of this reputation in the, the military, thanks to some, you know, some PR things that they did. Sort of like, these, it was really glamorous. Like you had these skiing GIs. And the, the force reminded me of that a bit. Did the force, did they develop a reputation amongst other branches in the military? They did. And it was a, a reputation that, that basically other people in the army, particularly people who'd seen combat, uh, didn't feel was deserved. Uh, they'd heard about this force. They'd obviously heard about its training. They heard about its glamorous uniform. They heard about its 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 feeling that it could, you know, it could pretty much accomplish anything. And they weren't convinced. And, you know, and understandably, they weren't convinced because it hadn't seen any action and it wasn't going to see any action for a while. In fact, I think the fact that it doesn't see a action for, for quite a long time, Brett, is one of the reasons why it was so superbly trained. I mean, one of the problems you have in wartime is the speed with which soldiers get trained and thrown into action. Luckily, because of various delays in, in finding the right target for the force, it had a good year to train properly. And, I, you know, and it was all the better for that. But certainly there was a lot of jealousy among the rest of the military. And it's interesting you mentioned the 10th Mountain Division because in the early days when they were thinking of how they were going to de develop the force, they were thinking, you know, we'll, we'll match the two together. We might even equip the 10th Mountain Division with, with weasels, but that never actually happened. You mentioned they have glamorous uniforms. How are they different from the other uniforms? They well, they they had developed this. You know, if you if you think about it, you, it's not going to be American. It's not going to be Canadian. It's going to be a mixture between the two. Incredibly smart, so that even a private soldier basically looked like he was an officer. They had this, you know, this very natty lanyard, which uh, red, white, and blue lanyard that that ran through one of the soldier epaulets. And you know, if you saw these guys in the street, you'd have thought there's an officer. And every single member of the force, and there were about 1,500 combat soldiers in the force, was wearing this uniform. Of course, they didn't go into combat in that uniform, but off-duty, that's what they were wearing. And if people saw them in the street, they must have been thinking, who are these guys? Yeah, I'm looking at a picture right now. It's it's pretty sharp looking. So you, you so one of the issues they had, they, the military, so they're training these guys, and originally they were supposed to go to Norway, but then... 
the high command, they started figuring, well, maybe we're not going to do that. And they had a lot of problems trying to figure out what exactly they were going to do with them. And this started becoming a problem because like a lot of the leaders were worried, these guys are going to get stale. Like they're, they've trained, they're ready, they're raring to go. But if we don't let them get action now, they might go bad. So what happened? Why did they decide not to send them to Norway? And why were they sort of in limbo for a while? Well, the, the original plan to send them to Norway was predicated on enough uh, planes being available to fly them and the weasels to Norway and drop them in there. Of course, there was an alternative. They could have gone by sea, but that was pretty quickly rejected. They felt they needed to insert them into the, you know, the wastelands of Norway where they wouldn't be located by the Germans. And the only way they could do that was by air. There, there were other factors involved, interestingly enough. The Norwegians themselves weren't that keen on these various uh, industrial targets being destroyed because they felt it would affect their own population. And there were other, you know, secretive units like SOE, the Special Operations Executive, who were also carrying out similar targets, who very much were feeling this, you know, you're mustering in on our patch. So there was a lot of opposition to using them in Norway. And the decision was taken, interestingly enough, by the Americans to you know, rethink how they were going to be used. If we if we, if we, we can't get the planes to drop them for these behind-the-lines targets, we need to rethink how we're going to use them. And the, and the idea really comes, we're going to use them as elite commander units. They may still be behind the lines, but when they're not going to be dropped miles behind the lines. We could possibly operate them behind the front in a much more conventional type of military warfare. And while they're figuring this out, what they're going to do with them in Europe, they actually, one of the first missions they went on was to Kiska, which is Alaska. So they were actually trying to fight the Japanese, the Pacific Theater. And they, the 10th Mountain Division was also at Kiska. How did the, the troops fare from the force? How did they do? Yeah, they do very well at Kiska, actually. I mean, Kiska has gone down in history as a bloodless victory. It was a landing that was unopposed by the Japanese because they'd uh, bugged out a few days before. But what you realize from the the actual landings on Kiska is what a brutal terrain it would have been to fight in. Kiska, of course, being one of the Aleutian Islands in the Pacific and, you know, up near Alaska, this this is tough terrain to fight in. And and so it proved. And one of the interesting things about the the force and the job of the force was to go in first. They're both going to land first, but they're also going to be used as a strike force by by dropping them by parachute as well. And what what you see with them is this incredible discipline. I mean, one of the scandals, well, not the scandals, but one of the criticisms of the the Kiska campaign is there were a lot of friendly fire incidents, a lot of people getting shot by their own side because the troops were very jittery before they realized that the Japanese weren't there. And actually the the force men were much more disciplined, and there's a sense that these guys are properly under control. And also physically, the you know the kind of distances they had to march and the speed with which they did it, it was all pretty impressive. And it was a very good dry run to be truthful for what they were eventually going to have to accomplish in Italy. All right, so yeah, that's right. So they went to Kiska. They went to that limbo period. They didn't know what they're going to do with them. Finally, high command decided we're going to send them to Italy. Where in Italy exactly were was the force sent to? Well, the connection, interestingly enough, Brett, is Eisenhower. Eisenhower is now the supreme commander in the Mediterranean and has been since the uh, landings in North Africa towards the end of 1942. And his feeling is we need a force that we can use for the landings in Sicily first and then and then ultimately the landings in Italy. Now, Sicily goes by without the force being used. That's the summer of 1943. But by the autumn of 1943, when the landings in Italy proper have taken place, 
there's a bit of a stalemate. And there's a stalemate in the mountains in, in southern Italy, mainly involving the U.S. Fifth Army, commanded by General Mark Clark, who's one of the protégés of Eisenhower. And Clark is demanding, he hears about this force and he asks for it specifically. He's thinking they could be a big deal breaker in the mountains, that this is what they're trained for. We can't get through the mountains, mainly because the Germans are holding all these high mountain passes. And if we can get the force to actually strike against one of these passes, you know, we may be able to force our way through. And so there was one pass that they were really focused on. It was La Defensa. What was this pass like? What made it so difficult? And why was it so, so an important part of the Italian campaign? Well, Monte La Defensa has been a, you know, a stronghold since Roman times, hence its name. I mean, it, you know, it's known as the defendable mountain. It's a sheer cliff, basically. And, and to get up it, you have to scale it. You can go up the easy route, which, well, the easy, relatively easy route, which was, which of course was the way you would have walked up it. But that was mainly from the back of the mountain. And that was the bit of area that was controlled entirely by the Germans. So to get up the main bit of the mountain, you either had to go up a ramp, which of course the Germans were, were readily defending, or you had to climb cliffs. And the Germans were absolutely of the, of the opinion, quite understandably, that the Allies didn't have troops who could do that. Just to give you a bit of sense of context where, where the pass was, it was really the keystone in a defensive system known as the Winter Line, which is a re- really a chain of mountains. And the Monte La Defensa is on the, sh- on the shoulder of a pass known as the Leary Valley, which the Americans, the American Fifth Army, wants to advance up with its armor, but it can't do that until it's taken the two shoulders of the pass. So to take first Monte La Defensa and then the other shoulders is going to require an extraordinary effort. And various attempts have been made to do this, and they've been beaten off with heavy losses. And when the force finally arrives towards the end of November 1940 three and Clark is planning for the next uh, attack, you know, it's like manna from heaven. Okay, we can use the force to take Monte La Defensa. That was the that was the idea. And how do they do it? What was the approach? I mean, you couldn't go around, you couldn't go up the ramp. So what do these guys do? Well, they scouted out uh, and very quickly the scouts who include the the character I mentioned earlier, Van Ausdale, Ausdale goes on a personal scout with a major uh, and they walk Behind the lines, actually, it was in the, even the even the scouting mission was incredibly dangerous. And they go behind the lines, and it's at that point that Van Ousdale notices this this sheer cliff. And this cliff is on the northern side of the of the mountain, and that was well behind German lines. So not only are the Germans thinking, well, no one's going to, no one could climb this even if they could get to it. They're also thinking, well, they can't get to it because the lines are, you know, are further the other way. So, and it's Van Ausdel's recommendation that this is the route they take to get up the mountain. And so they just climbed it up like at the sheer cliff. Yeah, it's uh, you know you you the pictures of it are really quite extraordinary. It, it, it's it's just a sheer slab of of rock, two hundred feet long, and even to get to that point, and that's the final bit. That's just before the peak. Even to get to that bit, you've got to climb up. You know, the mountain itself is a uh, thousand meters, or just under a thousand meters. I mean, we're talking three thousand feet high. This is a sizable, uh, but also brutal conditions. The time of year. This is December. It's you know it's wet. It's cold. It's snowy. Uh, you know, the chances of getting up this mountain for any normal soldier at night, and it's held by some of 
some of you know some of the most effective soldiers in the German army, Panzer Grenadiers, who were all veterans. Really, you know, no one else uh, apart from the force, in my view, would have even considered that it was viable to attempt. And it's in it's in the climbing of this mountain, really, that I think the all the different elements of the of the force training come together to allow them to pull it off. And I imagine that they were victorious. They they took the mountain in the end. Yeah, it's it really you know it's the climax to the book. It's you know I don't want to give too much away. Sure. But it, it, it's, it's an astonishing story, really. And just getting up to the top of the mountain is one of the great military feats, in my view. And once they're up there, they've got to take the mountain against these crack troops. And they do it because of their training and because of their aggression and because of their determination. You know, all these things come together and they capture the mountain. It, you know, it's one of the great feats of the Second World War. Why it isn't better known, I, I honestly don't know. Funnily enough, Brett, there was a film made in the 1960s. So, you know, if you're long enough in the tooth, and some of your listeners will be, they might have seen that film called The Devil's Brigade, which, which actually deals with the capture of this mountain and talking a bit about the, you know, the early days for the force. But, but since that film and since one or two books, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of gone, disappeared into history. And I, I'm still slightly mystified as to why. No, your description of the battle was just fantastic. Really engaging, action-packed. And then you mentioned that they were called the Devil's Brigade, and that was from the Germans, like from that encounter. The Germans had this encounter with the force, and they basically called them devils, and the name stuck. Yeah, the, the force goes on to do other extraordinary things, actually. At Anzio, they are the first troops into Rome. They're the first troops to invade the south of France at the, just after um, the D-Day landings. You know, they're always at the forefront of any, any tough fight fighting. And they go on to, you know, really carry out some extraordinary achievements. I, in my view, the, the, the capture of Monte La Defensa is still their greatest single achievement. But, but as you say, the Germans were, were, frankly, in awe of them and gave them a number of nicknames, one of which was the Black Devils, which is where you get the name the Devil's Brigade from. And they gave them that name, the Black Devils, because during the Anzio standoff, I suppose you'd call it, when, when the beachhead was being controlled by the Germans, the only bit of the beachhead that, that the Germans wanted to stay well away from was the bit that the force were defending because they would aggressively patrol every night. They would ar- arrive where the Germans weren't expecting them. They would find dead bodies in the morning with cards on them with, with, with a little you know symbol. And it, that's where they got their name because, of course, they'd always be blacked up when they went out on these night operations. That's why they were known as the Black Devils. So yeah, after the defense, they, you said they were basically used as commandos and campaigns throughout Italy. What happened after the war? What happened to the force? I think one of the reasons why the force isn't better known is because of its fate towards the end of 1944. The force is actually disbanded at the beginning of December 1944. And given its achievements in the year earlier, you know, it's only really been in combat for a year, but it's done some astonishing things. So you might ask the question, why is it, why is it disbanded? Actually, one of the main reasons it's disbanded is because of its binational nature. Um, the Canadians simply didn't feel they could devote the resources to, you know, to putting in reinforcements. Therefore, their element of the force was being diluted all the time, and they didn't think that was acceptable. There was a possibility of continuing it just as American only, but there was a feeling that that, you know, that that would take away from its essential esprit de corps. And so the decision was taken to disband it. While the war was still ongoing, and there was another reason for this, actually, which is that by the end of 1944, D-Day's come and gone, 
the various allied armies are, are approaching or are into bits of Germany. And there's a feeling that really you don't need this kind of specialized force anymore. It's really about, you know, using the big sledgehammer to crack and not, not, and not the stiletto, which is what the force was. But then, you know, they were disbanded, but did they have an influence on the respective militaries in, the, in Canada and the United States? Yes. I mean, I think that's the real point is that the legacy of the force carried on, in particular in the early, late 1950s and early 1960s in the US when, when the first Green Beret units were being formed. And they very much were formed in not just in honor, but in the, in, 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 you know, with, with the whole kind of sense of training and, and use that the force had been created for. So you get this unbroken line, albeit that the force has been disbanded at the end of the Second World War between the force and special forces today. And the, and the same goes for Canadian special forces. You know, all, all these units look back on, regularly attend the force reunions, which are still happening. You might be surprised to hear, Brett, there are one or two forcemen still alive that I was able to interview. And at every one of these gatherings, these association gatherings, there is a member of the US and the Canadian Special Forces, which you underlines the bond between them. That's crazy that there's some still alive. Who, who's still alive? Uh, well, there's a man called Callowhill, Jack Callowhill, who's a Canadian. He's the last man alive who actually went up Monte La Defensa. He's, he's in his late 90s now. I interviewed him three or four years ago for the force. His, his, his mind was as sharp as it must have been when he actually went up the mountain. Uh, you know, really an extraordinary guy, ordinary guy, came back, got married, worked in a tinning company in Hamilton, Ontario for the rest of his life. You know, hides his light under a bushel, to be truthful. Very modest guy, Brett. And I, I think most of these special forces guys, that, that's fairly typical. That's who they are. They don't shout about what they've done, but they did some extraordinary things. Yeah, here's a, I see a picture here of uh, Kyle Hill right now. Good looking guy. It says here he, he joined the force to get out from under his family and look for a bit yeah, of adventure. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a, they, they, they all had very different ideas for why they were going to do it. Some wanted to get into combat, some wanted to venture, some wanted to see the world, and some, as, as in Kyle Hill's case, just wanted to get, get out of the, you know, out, out of their family and, and to grow up a bit. I mean, you know, he's, he's 18 or 19 at the time, uh, and he wanted to experience, you know, life. Well, Saul, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, you can go to my website, www.sauldavid.co.uk. But also you can find my books, in particular, The Force, at, at most bookshops in the US and the UK, uh, and also on most of the websites, Amazon and, and the like. All right. Well, Saul, David, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, Brett. My guest today was Saul David. He's the author of the book, The Force, the legendary special ops unit in World War II's Mission Impossible. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about the work at our show notes at aom.is slash the force. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.